This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. In the last episode, I had been speaking about how British secret services maintained an annual file on historian Eric Hobsbawm. His fault was that he had been a lifelong proclaimed communist. He did not carry out any subversive activity. Although for a brief period in the mid-1930s, he was mentally prepared to perform underground activities. The party did not ask him and his intent did not find an outlet to turn into concrete action. MI5 or the British Secret Services did not open a file on his activities until much later though. It was in 1941 when he had been working as a German language and current affairs trainer to English soldiers and happened to invite an acquaintance that his name first made it to the intelligence files. That acquaintance, Hans Kahle, had been suspected uh, an agent for Soviet Union. However, the surveillance had marked Hobsbawm out as a potential threat to the state. Though the precise nature of that threat was rarely made clear. His own research supervisor often enough mentioned to whoever cared to listen that his word was a dreaded communist. Now, members of the service rarely lost an opportunity to send words to his potential employers that recruiting him might be a risky business. This kind of persistent surveillance of a professional historian without any track record of a previous misdeed offers important insights about the pervasive anxiety which had characterized the decisions and actions of the British intelligence services against communism as an idea. Lofty tales of British bravery in the face of Nazi assault after 1940 often obscure the degree to which the British secret services walked in close cooperation with the Nazi secret services. The week Hobsbawm left Berlin for London in April 1933, the deputy head of counter-espionage division of MI5 arrived from London. He met uh, the station chief of MI6 in Berlin and together they had a meeting with officials of the German political police which had only recently taken over the headquarters of the German Communist Party, which was now deemed illegal and made to go underground. 
the head of German political police informed them that they had been meaning to exterminate the communist. They understood that a good deal of third degree was going on and that, I quote, Jews, communists and even social democrats, unquote, were submitted to every kind of outrage. That, however, did not cause them any discomfiture. They settled down to examine the available files of the German Communist Party. They had been looking to examine the Comintern files in particular, with the objective to gather information about the organizational plans of the communists in Western Europe and in the colonies. They were given every possible opportunity to look at those papers, including the right to copy them and send across to MI5 in Britain. They were satisfied that the Germans, and I quote, were ready to help in any way they can, unquote, and confident, quote, that if personal contact were maintained, the relationship would persist, unquote. This part of their work had nothing to do with Hobbsbaum, but offers an insight on their close cooperation with the Nazis from the time they came to power. We must remember at this juncture that the German political police of early 1933 later was turned into the Gestapo. Hobsbawm files also offer some light on the problems of working with intelligence documents. Now, the silent deceptions by which deception is itself concealed. Many names are redacted. Some pages have been removed in toto and replaced with a white sheet on which is stamped a grammatically unappealing message. Quote, the original document retained in department under section 3 by 4 of the Public Records Act of 1958, That section 3 uh, by 4 allows for retention of a record for a special reason, which does not have to be given. No reason is given either for the absence of an entire folder of the Hobbsbaum file. Retained, lost in transit, destroyed, also withheld as standard practice is MI5's intelligence assessment, that is, the casework on the material collected in a file. In other words, there is very little on what the MI5 actually thought about the activities of Eric Hobsbawm. What we have is their description or reports of his activity. For a researcher, it's like flying on manual without the manual, then getting sucked out of the sky into the mysterious negative space 
leagues below. There's very little down here, no markers by which to tell time. So we must deploy all our senses. For example, we can deduce something from the feel of the Hobsbawm file. It's heft or thickness. A PF is like a medical file. It starts with one flimsy page and then as the diagnostics proceed, its growth accompanies that of the disease it charts. PF211764, that is the number of the Hobsbawm file, weighs in at a thousand or so pages. They were collected chronologically as volumes and held together with treasury tags in buff folders that run from June 1942 to December 1963. The missing file probably belonged to January 1957 to November 1958. Hobsbawm was considered a hardliner or a Category A communist, and his file remained live or active for decades after that, possibly as late as 1994, when the section dealing with such cases was allegedly stood down. Simply by virtue of living as long as he did, Hobsbawm must lay claim to one of the biggest personal files in MI5's vast black catalog. Then there's a smell of the file, the physical residue of ink and carbon and onion paper, and the many hands that passed over it, fingertips licked to separate the pages and the distinct scent of the archival matter, slightly sour, of moldy particles of dust and time, fugitive traces. When I mentioned this to David Cornwell or John Lacar, he says, and I quote, I can still feel it in my nostrils now, unquote. Historians like Spooks need a sensitive nose for the direction of all the smelly little orthodoxies which are now contending for our souls. What was the smell of uh, the Gestapo files that found their way into the central registry of MI5's Mayfair headquarters? The Reichstag fire? the book burnings? For what were these files, these endless lists and card indexes, if not the pennies for feeding the gas meters? Uh, some of the MI officials disapproved of the Nazis' methods. I quote, apart from the moral aspect, uh, they do not pay in the long run. One of them later wrote in his diary. 
and British anti-communism was organized around strategies that did not include mass murder. But MI5's pre-war liaison with Hitler's political police was built on the promise of reciprocity. So it is reasonable to fear that there was two-way traffic in blacklists between Berlin and London. How long this arrangement lasted is a matter of speculation. What is known is that both MI5 and MI6 had information that must have come from a German source containing the political activities of left-wing refugees who sought sanctuary in Britain from 1933 onwards. Some were indeed ideological communists, others were sympathizers, and many were not communists at all, but anti-fascists and pacifists who had aligned themselves with the KPD as a matter of contingency. If they did not already have a personal file, most of them acquired one within days of arriving at a British port. Additionally, their names were listed in the precautionary index or a register of persons potentially dangerous to national defense. The idea that Nazis themselves or their supporters in Britain might pose a danger to national security was very slow to mature in the British intelligence community. In a letter circulated to all chief constables in May 1934, MI5's Director General Vernon Kell explained that fascism was, to a great extent, I quote, a natural reaction from communism, unquote. If something so underdeveloped can be called a thesis, was widely shared in Whitehall. When Hugh Trevor Roper joined MI6 in 1941, he doubted that, I quote, there was one man there at the time who had read Mein Kampf, unquote. Indeed, Hitler's rise to power made virtually no impression at all on the defenders of the realm, except as an opportunity to expand the franchise on anti-communist surveillance. To this end, officers of the special branch, the arms and legs of MI5, monitored all entries to British Ports. Postal checks on Hobsbawm's address, first authorized when he was still in the army, had failed to turn up any further links to Kale himself. But he might yet be incriminated in his putative network. Hobsbawm's letters were steamed open with kettles in a room on the first floor of the post office at St. Martin's Grand Depot near St. Paul's Cathedral. 
the existence of GPO's Special Investigations Unit, which had a facility in every major sorting office in the country, was highly classified. But like Congreve's secret, it was whispered everywhere. The postman and future Home Secretary Alan Johnson was aware that letters on his round were surreptitiously removed from the frame and taken upstairs. Photostats were made using pedal-operated cameras, later replaced with less cumbersome 30 millimeter film and Kodak cameras. The copies were then couriered in unmarked green vans to MI5's Mayfair headquarters. Also top secret, the local bus conductors helpfully called out the stop as Carson Street and MI5, while the originals were forwarded to the cover address. All but one. Hanging on a wall of the St. Martin's unit was a framed letter. And there's some humor coming here. Addressed on the envelope was a prominent cadre of the Communist Party. The typewritten message inside read, quote, to MI5, if you steam this open, you are dirty buggers, unquote. The head of the unit classified it as obscene post, which meant that legally he had no duty to send it on. In his early years of realignment after Hitler's death, described by Arthur Miller as this wrenching shift, this ripping off of good and evil from the one nation and pasting them to another, unquote, fresh traces on suspected communists were being received daily from British intelligence outposts in the defeated territories of Third Reich. As staff in London struggled to cope with the backlog of new information, officers in the field pumped their high-value sources, which included an assortment of Nazi war criminals, among them Frederick Buchert, who was a leader of an SS death squad that specialized in the slaughter of Jews and communists, and Gestapo officer Florst Koppelko, um, Florst Kopko, responsible for the execution of some 300 captured British agents. The Americans cherry-picked Klaus Burby, the butcher of Lyon, and Reinhard Gehlen, whose German army intelligence unit was preserved intact to build and direct a spy ring against the Soviet Union. These men, experts in hunting down communists, all bought their way out of criminal proceedings, 
with the same blood-stained currency, that is, intelligence files. While the security services, defenders of the realm, policemen of our souls, were high on intelligence dope from Hitler's henchmen, Hobsbawm was set on more sober course of preparing lectures that could capture attention of students who had to earn their living during the day. So we have a great deal on the collusion of unethical collusion of secret services with the Nazis and former Nazis here. So the British intelligence war on communism may have avoided the vulgar hysteria of McCarthyism or Nazism, but it was hitched to the same calculation that communism was an alien ideology, the fevered product of a foreigner who had spent too much time in the British library and that all its servants were vectors for its dangerous pathogens. But the definition of communist was perilously vague. At MI5, it included everything from Comintern controlled to partyman to sympathetic to the communist party to holding communist views, a man of communist appearance, intellectual communist, communist of a highly idealistic and literary brand, known to hold socialist views, close friend of a communist, having the appearance of a communist Jew, and dressing in a bohemian fashion. You could be described in any one of these phrases and be suspected a communist as far as MI5 was concerned. This kind of hold-all profiling had been sanctified by George Orwell. In his list of 38 journalists and writers, whom he believed to be crypto-communists, fellow travelers, or inclined that way, other pejoratives flow from his blue pencil, sentimental sympathizer, Zionist, Jewish, dishonest carrierist, anti-British, makes huge sums of money in USSR, very anti-white, reliably pro-Russian on all major issues, easily influenced, tendency towards homosexuality. Now, these, of course, referred to George Orwell's list with regard to some of his fellow intellectuals. Let us not get into the name game. Orwell's list is remarkably contiguous, incidentally, with the personal files so far released by MI5 which is not surprising. In May 1949, Orwell helpfully donated his strictly confidential list to a semi-covert branch of the Foreign Office, 
whence it was filtered strictly confidentially into the intelligence apparatus. Now, George Orwell was the last person one would associate with uh, the business of chasing or uh, secret service profiling, but here he was. Even the best of Englishmen could uh, be a victim of anxiety. In time, and one is left to ponder whether or not Orwell's approval would have been withheld, the word communist came to be viewed as coterminous with membership of, among other things, CND, Friends of the Earth, the National Council for Civil Liberties, the Fire Brigades Union, the Anti-Apartheid Movement, even the Seventh-day Adventists. So one could be a member of these organizations and still be suspected as communists by the MI5 operatives. As the color red spread like a disease on the retina of the security services, so a peculiar blindness to right-wing organizations also developed. There was only one person covering all of right-wing subversion, according to an observation by um, Kathy Messeter, who worked for MI5 in the 70s. While there was many dozens dealing with communisms, across Whitehall, secret committees tasked with developing national security procedures chose to simplify their reporting by following, quote, the common practice of using the phrase communist throughout to include fascists. Yes, the word communist also covered fascists. Perhaps on that ironical note, which could not be more ironical, we must conclude this episode. The communists were so dreaded by the British intelligence agencies that they used the word communists even for fascists. Hobsbawm files indeed opens our eyes to the deep institutional anxiety in British intelligence circles about communism as an idea and about communists as uh, members of some kind of a secret subversive cult. I'll see you next week with another episode of History Chatter. Till then, this is Anirban signing off. Do please subscribe to History Chatter in Epilogue Media website and all other available um, platforms such as uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Hubhopper and so forth. See you then.